welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Lavender. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley's interview of Joe Ritchie of Lights Out Norlight about supporting the Cohoes City Council's efforts to pass a local law to enforce that waste ash can uh, waste ash be sent to a licensed hazardous waste facility. Then Willie Terry brings us part two of the speech by Dr. Jennifer Burns called "Free Black Community in Troy and Why Before 1861" from the double NAACP Troy Branch Freedom Fund breakfast. Later on, Marsha Lazarus continues her conversation with local peace activist Daniel Noah Moses, who lived and worked in Jerusalem and speaks about the challenges that stand in the way of achieving long-term peace in Israel and occupied Palestine. After that, Bria Barthel gives us an insight uh, into the fun fall activities happening at Troy Public Library. Finally, we hear about the Friday night event, Exploring Motherhood, Navigating the Journey of Disability, at the sanctuary. Okay, but here, but first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that after many years of effort, the hulking central warehouse alongside 787 in downtown Albany may end up being demolished despite a $10 million state grant to help with the project. The, the developers say that the building is in worse shape than they thought, and the dramatic rise in interest rates make the redevelopment unaffordable. Benjamin Garland, who ran his family's Arbor Hill funeral home for 50 years, has died shortly after his 85th birthday. Garland Bros Funeral Home, founded by Garland's uncle Clifford Garland on Orange Street in 1929, when white-owned funeral homes did not serve black families, moved to its present location on Clinton Avenue in 1943. A half century of hip hop's evolution will be celebrated at the Troy Music Hall on Friday, October 27th. The event will highlight the rich history of hip hop with both classic tracks and original songs in performances. Equinox will not be delivering meals this Thanksgiving, citing logistical challenges and inflation, funding and staffing and volunteer changes. Equinox, which started its Thanksgiving effort in 1969, had shifted to only deliveries during COVID. Equinox will offer a sit-down dinner and takeout for up to 1,000 people at their original site, the First Presbyterian Church in Albany, on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Other programs, such as the Albany County Sheriff, have started their own Thanksgiving delivery programs. The city of Troy is allocating $1 million in federal COVID relief relief funds, part of ARPA, to establish the Community Business Investment Grant Program. The program will provide financial support to eligible commercial and mixed-use projects with a focus on vacant or underutilized commercial properties. The City of Troy's Lead Water Service Line Replacement Program has begun work on Excelsior Avenue, which will continue into late November. 
Homeowners whose water line is set to be replaced are supposed to be notified by the city at least one day in advance of the work in order for residents to plan for any service interruptions. That's it for headlines. Current federal and state law requires toxic incinerator ash to be sent to commercial hazardous waste landfills. Norlight continues to mix their waste ash and its aggregate product and sells these block mix to the building industry. Joe Ritchie, a member of Lights Out Norlight, which supports the Cahoe City Council's effort to pass a local law to enforce that waste ash be sent to a licensed hazardous waste facility, discusses the proposed legislation with Mark Dunley. We're talking with uh, Joe Ritchie, uh, a longtime resident of Cahoes, most of his life actually in the Saratoga site uh, housing complex across the railroad tracks from the Norlight Hazardous Waste Incinerator and leader of the uh, local Lights Out Norlight group that's been fighting to both clean up the facility and, and to get it shut down. But uh, Joe, I understand, you know, even though I know Lights Out Norlight has gotten involved in joining the a lawsuit that the uh, New York State DEC and Attorney General have filed, filed against Norlight as a public nuisance, particularly where it's dust emissions. Uh, you are now involved in trying to get the city council to pass a law to try to change how they're dealing with the uh, toxic ash from the facility? Yes, that's right. Um, we're trying to get the, the city of Cohoes to enact a law that would prevent Norlight from mixing in their hazardous waste ash, which is their waste material from their hazardous waste incineration. And it can include things like mercury and different heavy metals and silica dust. Um, we're trying to get the city to prevent Norlite from mixing this product into their product uh, because of its toxicity. And already the EPA has ruled that this exemption named the Bevel Amendment uh, can no longer apply However, the DEC has really slowed down this process in recent years and uh, is looking to let them have it as long as they want to. Um, recently, they've taken some proactive measures, which we always welcome, to stop Norlight from using this exemption. However, they've given Norlight the chance and opportunity to state their case at a public forum uh, in the coming month or so at the Cohoes Senior Center. So we're really encouraging the city of Cohoes to take the first step and saying, no, Norlet, you can no longer do this practice, just like they did a few years ago with the PFAS bill, which has had now national implications with PFAS incineration policy. Now, you know, you mentioned it was the so-called Bevel Amendment, which is was a federal exemption to allow um, particularly coal plants, but also mining operations like with aggregate, which Norlite does, well, under it, not to have to treat the toxic uh, ash as a waste product that goes to a, you know, a commercial hazardous waste landfill, but instead they're able to sell it with their uh, aggregate product. What, what does Norlite say about, you know, since this exemption has ended and they've been notified by DEC and EPA, that they're no, no longer qualified for, you know, why are they still not, not uh, you know, treating the, uh, the ash uh, as a hazardous waste as they're legally required to do so? Yes, because they make a lot of money um, using this product in uh, the, the product that they sell, their aggregate. 
And um, if they would have to ship it away, they would have to pay enormous fees because they would start shipping this away and no longer using it in their product and making a profit off of it. And we think that this is actually a big part of their profit margins. And if you look at a Google Earth image of the facility on the south side of the plant, you could see very large piles of this stuff in open air. This is the hazardous dust that we're talking about here. Um, ash, I should say. And it's wide up in the open. And they kind of use this to create their final product, the aggregate that they sell to places nationwide and potentially worldwide. So we're really trying to stop the main ingredient in their aggregate product, which sometimes this toxic ash accounts for 88% or more of the actual aggregate product. So, you know, sometimes Norlite builds their aggregate product as good garden filler. Well, I don't think I'd want hazardous ash in my uh, tomatoes. So we're really just trying to get the city to act on this, Mayor Keeler to take lead with the council to prevent Norlite from doing this because we think this ash product is Norlite's bread and butter and it simply can no longer exist. Now, I understand that this draft law uh, is actually based on a law that was introduced at the state legislature a number of years ago, particularly by Assemblymember John McDonald and then Senator Breslin, who, due to reapportionment, no, actually no longer represent Cahos, who was not long introduced to bill. Um, there's a, a, a meeting, city council, common council, on the 24th of October, Tuesday. Is there going to be a public hearing? You know, where is the bill at this point in the process? I understand a lot of the present common council members are not going to be there after the next election. So how does that impact upon the need to move on this quickly? Yes. So you bring up a good point. It makes it a very urgent issue. Fortunately, the council does not change until January, but the next council that could potentially enter would not be really a friendly uh, lights out nor light council. You know, this this coming meeting is the council's meeting, which they actually vote on legislation. I have to follow up with the city's mayor, with the city's lawyer, I should say, and make sure that the city can actually vote on this because with local law apparently <clears throat> needs about two weeks in front of the council in order to vote on it. So if it's not voted on this coming session, which there is public comment at every meeting, um, it will most likely be brought up if brought up uh, in November at their second meeting uh, for vote, uh, which would be the end of the end of November. We're really pushing hard. Lights out Norlight uh, today on Wednesday, October 18th has sent over the mayor and council some supporting letters uh, about this bill and more information and to kind of, um, you know, answer any questions that they may have regarding this bill because it's complicated, but at the core of it, uh, it really is a simple issue and that's stopping Norlite from using this hazardous waste ash in their product. Has, I'm going to do a two-part question. Uh, we got about three minutes left. So one, has Mayor Keller, you know, expressed any opinion about whether or not he supports this law? And can you also give us a quick update on what's going on with the Saratoga Sites Public Housing Project, which I understand the city has now moved all the tenants out. Is the city buying that? Is that being raised? What's, what's happening with that? 
Yes. So the city of Cohoes is going to be purchasing Saratoga sites and thus responsible for the demolition of Saratoga sites. Uh, it has to be officially brought to the council by the Cohoes Housing Authority, which I imagine will be happening within the next month or so. Um, and then the city would like to, from my understanding, pursue various state and federal grants to help pay for the estimated $600,000 it will cost to actually demolish Saratoga sites. Um, my guess, because it's now been a couple years since the first initial proposal from the Housing Authority, that that's probably more than $600,000 now with inflation. So we shall see. But yes, that's full steam ahead. The Cohoes Housing Authority, I think, has done a phenomenal job with the relocation process. And they've been very transparent throughout the whole thing, always answering the questions that we have. And very appreciative, especially from um, chairman of the board, Mark Pascal, who has always answered every question I had within a very reasonable amount of time. So that process should be happening. You know, the, the official transfer, my guess is really soon. When we'll see the bulldozers come, that is another question because they still need to acquire the grant money to actually demolish Saratoga sites. And where does the mayor stand, if if at all, on this proposed legislation to require the NORLAD to comply with law on treatment of the hazardous ash? 45 seconds. Yes. Uh, the mayor right now asked a few questions at our last meeting, which were good. Um, he didn't seem so disinterested like he does with other people that come to the council meetings. So I think it's really just seeing his... Uh, initial thoughts on it. Um, I personally don't know that, but Lights Out Norlight this week will find out his initial thoughts about the bill and also um, how viable it will be to pass this in the next month or so. But we're very confident that we already have a few members already supportive of this. We need four. We think we have three right now as it stands. Lights Out Norlight have a website? Yeah, Lights Out Norlight does. You just look us up on Google. We'll, we do have a, a little Facebook page. City Council meeting will be on uh, Tuesday, October 24th, and we'll certainly provide an update. And this is uh, Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk. Again, that public comment period before the Cohoes Council meeting is on Tuesday, October 24th at 7 p.m. And earlier this month, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry attended the NAACP Troy Branch Freedom Fund Breakfast with guest speaker Dr. Jennifer Burns, PhD and professor of history at SUNY Albany. Willie recorded her speech that was called Free Black Community in Troy, New York, before 1861. And this labor segment is part two of a four-part series. And so now I want to share with you a little bit of what I learned about the black Trojans, because I wrote, you know, a 500-page dissertation <laughs> on them, okay? What I want to start with is a woman named Hannah Butler. Hannah was interviewed in 1883 by the Troy Times. And at that point, she was almost 80 years old. And she was being interviewed by the paper because they were celebrating the, um, <clears throat> the Emancipation Proclamation and also, which is not exactly 
a year or a hundred years earlier, but she, they were celebrating that and they were celebrating the founding of the city of Troy, so the centennial of the city. And they wanted to know a black perspective on what life was like in Troy over those years. And so Hannah took out what she called her most prized possession, which was her family Bible. And it had her family tree in it, which is pretty extraordinary for a woman who was born enslaved in Stillwater, New York. So she has this Bible. It has her name in it, and it has her husband's name in it. And her husband's name was Robert T. Butler. He was born in 1781. He relocated to Troy from New Hope, Connecticut, and he sold apples at the old post office. He would later later serve as a lay preacher in the Methodist Church. Before he met Hannah, and he had come to Troy, he had made a name for himself. And that name was of a community-minded black minister. And I thought that was really profound, because as that little girl, where are all the black people and what are they doing? Here's a guy, right? Here's one when I discovered him. And then, of course, Hannah comes to Troy, but Hannah says she remembers being sold for $100. And this happened before the state prohibited or abolished slavery in 1827. So the child, what shaped her memory, was the exchange of $100 for her to be moved from her family to a different white family. She had a sister who she stayed connected with and who later moved to Troy after slavery was abolished. And she had two brothers. One of them, Thomas, worked at the Troy house. And then he became a sailor. Hannah never knew where her brothers went after that. The other thing that Hannah says in this interview was that she was waiting and she was praying for someone to come talk to her so she could tell her story. So that people who knew her earlier in life, her people could find her again. And I realize that as much as that is emotionally moving, those are the feelings that I try to write about and the stories I try to convey out of Troy. Because people like Hannah ended up becoming the black leadership in this city before slavery was abolished. Hannah's husband, like I said, was a lay minister in the Methodist Church. When the two of them first arrived in Troy, there was about 200 enslaved people It quickly rose to almost 600 enslaved people. Troy and Rensselaer County was one of the slowest counties in New York State to emancipate black people. It's a long legacy there. After emancipation by the state legislation happened in 1827, really within a year, African-Americans in Troy began to build the foundation of the community by claiming, naming, showing that they could control black spaces. And I say that in a way where I wanted to see black space in ink, right on paper in ink, in my books when I grew up. And to know that in the 1830s, 
there were people here doing that made me proud. So going back to the theme today, empower me. That empowered me to know that when I walked down those streets, there were people who had walked them before me, who had done extraordinary things, who looked like me, against bigger odds that I was facing in my life. These first black Trojans will establish churches. One of the first was the AME church. I know many of us think the Liberty Street Presbyterian Church, right? But that came almost a decade later, the AME first, right? After the AME church, the next thing that black Trojans established was a schoolhouse. And so I bring this up now in this order of the most vital core traditions of the black community. Church, education, right from the start, right? And so they have a Methodist church, an AME church, then they establish the schoolhouse. And the men in charge of the schoolhouse are a man named William Rich, and some of you know this other man too, Alexander Thuey. Alexander Thuey and his brother had come from Nassau, Bahamas, to Troy in the 1820s. They were free black men, and they chose Troy as their home. Alexander Thuey became a carpenter and he fell in love with a free black woman who was living here before emancipation happened and her name was Phoebe Van Rensselaer. Yeah, okay. Phoebe was brilliant and charismatic and Phoebe was one of the first women and also black people to begin banking at Troy Savings Bank. Phoebe then uses this financial savvy to guide other African-American women and men and to help them prepare their financial independence with their organizations that they were gonna create. And she did this by using the interests percentages over different time periods so that they were doubling their money or increasing their cents, right? This is powerful to think of a free black woman before slavery even was abolished, going to the bank, using the bank, and then teaching the rest of the black community and guiding the organizations and how to be financially independent and economically mobile. So Phoebe will ultimately marry Alexander. Right? Alexander and William Rich will be in charge of the Negro schoolhouse, so they will be the caretakers of it. Right? The Negro Schoolhouse will ultimately become Liberty Street Presbyterian Church. And the men and women here in Troy, like Phoebe and Alexander and William Rich and another man named Samuel Baltimore, who will be Peter Baltimore's father, Garnett Douglas Baltimore's grandfather, will begin to use the schoolhouse as the Presbyterian Church, and they will request a bright young scholar to come to Troy. And his name is Henry Highland Garnett. So there were black people here before Garnett. He didn't bring them all. (laughs) Right? Didn't bring them all. During the 1830s, black Trojans were really active. They created three women's organizations. 
They were through the churches, Liberty Street Presbyterian Church and the AME Church. They also created a youth organization called the Yates Juvenile Anti-Slavery Society that was named in honor of a man named Daniel Yates who prepared the legal treatise for black male equal suffrage. This is so important because we think even today about voting and the challenges people of color have voting in the city of Troy. That in 1836, black men met with William Yates and they laid out their arguments for birthright citizenship and equal voting rights. That became the backbone of the black male suffrage movement before the 15th Amendment was ratified in the Constitution. That happened here in Troy, right? That's powerful, and it was powerful to me to know that some of the first minds to discuss birthright citizenship and equal voting were here. They were here. That was Willie Terry's recording from the Free Black Community in Troy, New York before 1861 speech by Dr. Jennifer Burns at the NAACP Troy Branch Freedom Fund Breakfast. For those just tuning in, I'm Sina Bazilahickey. And I'm Lavender. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOC LP 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy, W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Share with a coworker or somebody who you thought, hmm, this person might like this segment. You can find all today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Local peace activist Daniel Noah Moses lived and worked in Jerusalem and continues to encourage dialogue among Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, and Palestinians. Daniel spoke with Marsha Lazarus about the challenges that stand in the way of communication and achieving long-term peace, security, and democracy in Israel and occupied Palestine. The spectrum of opinion when it comes to Palestine, when it comes to Israel, when it comes to the Holy Land, when it comes to however you want to frame it, the, the language immediately determines what perspective you're from. So is it is Israel a colonial enterprise that is occupying Palestinians in a completely unjust way and, and Israel has no right to exist? Okay, some people will say that. Is Israel the lone democracy in the Middle East fighting for survival against terrorists who hate Israel and want to kill all Jews? Some people will say that. I would argue that the, the, the actuality of the situation is far more complex and that Israel grew out of terrible de devastation. Um, with, with Jews running from places where they could no longer live. It is a conflict of two national groups that want the same homeland. Two groups, two nationalisms, a Jewish nationalism, which is called Zionism, a Palestinian nationalism. They both want the land. They can't have everything they want. It's impossible, unless they want to destroy the other one. So if one wants to destroy the other, 
yes, you can have a Zionism or you can have a Palestinian nationalism and the other will not exist. But if, if the other is going to exist, they have to somehow come to some kind of way of living together in, in justice and equality. But that is a long way ahead. This is Marsha Lazarus from Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm sitting here with Daniel Noah Moses, currently of Troy, New York. It's been about 10 days since the attack by Hamas militants on Israeli civilians and counterattack by the Israeli military. Over 4,000 people have died. At least 199 Israelis were taken hostage. The people of Gaza are facing a humanitarian catastrophe and violence and human suffering of an unimaginable scale threatened to engulf the region. I wanted to talk with you, Daniel, because you bring such a wide perspective. You've lived in Jerusalem for 11 years. Your work has involved promoting relationships among Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, and Palestinians living just across the border in Gaza. Daniel, how did we get here? I want you to just know when I try to answer this question, I'm only scratching the surface. And I urge anybody who wants to know a better, a more of an answer to that question to keep asking questions and to look at multiple sources and open your heart, open your mind to different perspectives on, on that answer. How did we get here to this point now? At the same time, I do want to give one slice of that answer as, as a Jewish person, as an American, and as a failed peace builder. If you're very critical of Israeli policy, but you still believe that Israelis have are human and have a right to live there, and, and, um, and that there is a Jewish connection to the land, where do you stand when it, it's only a demonstration that is pro-Palestinian pro in, in terms of Palestinian solidarity, but doesn't open its heart to the situation of Israelis who appear very strong and are very strong and have the military might, but inside, and the great Israeli writer Amos Oz said this at an event that I went to once, where he, he said this to a Palestinian friend of his. He said, I know that to you, we look so strong and we have the machine guns and we have the weapons and we are occupying you and we are creating terrible injustice for you. Yes, that's all true. But you must, if you're to remember and understand us in a way that would actually help to build a better future, you must realize that we feel like refugees, like weak, scared refugees who have escaped from the places that we came from and that uh, just two generations ago escaped the Holocaust of millions. And we don't feel strong. We feel imperiled and we feel surrounded. And that's also true. What's happened is since 1967, when Israel not only won the War of Independence in 48, but in 67 occupied the West Bank and Gaza. And then as the years went forward, in the decades went forward, the, the occupation of Gaza and the West Bank continued, and the right wing in Israel has grown stronger and stronger. And the current government now, with Netanyahu as a head, is the most right wing government. And Netanyahu, in the last, since he has been prime minister, there's been no negotiation with Palestinians, no outreach, no real recognition. It's clear, and among, in his coalition are very narrow-minded rabidly nationalistic people. The fact that they have come to power, this very right-wing coalition, does that reflect the majority of Israeli viewpoints? Whenever people talk about Israel or whenever people talk about Hamas 
whenever people talk about Iran, they make it sound like each one is just this entity walking across the world stage. Iran is a terrorist, this, this, and this. Israel is an occupying this, this, and this. All Israel, as well as Hamas, are in internally diverse, large groups of people. Israelis are not one thing. It's an extremely pluralistic society with radically different opinions. Um, I mean, a, a, a different ideas about about religion, about culture, about how to live, about you know people who come from all over the world. I mean, it's it's a it's a diaspora immigrant country in many like like the U.S. in many ways, but where you have Jews coming from what Iraq, from Morocco, from Yemen, from Ethiopia, from Poland, from Russia, from you know, they're they're very different, and you cannot take the elections as just a reflection of of, of what most Israelis would want. But it is true that the right wing in Israel has grown stronger and stronger, and it is true that demographically, they are they have a leg up because who's having more children? The ultra orthodox and the modern orthodox, who are the national religious. Many of them are more right wing, and many of them live in the settlements in the West Bank. And so those two groups of ultra-Orthodox Jews and, and national religious Jews are having far more children than, than everybody else, except also you have the Palestinian Israelis or Palestinian citizens of Israel or Arab Israelis. You'll call them something different depending on where you come from. They have a high birth rate too. So the demographics of Israel are changing. The old socialist kibbutznik Israelis um, who were left-wing in many ways, they're just not reproducing. And besides that, the peace movement collapsed, partly because of Rabin's assassination and partly because of well, the Second Intifada. So all of that, combined with how people are in silos and don't know one another, creates a situation where public opinion in Israel is very sour when it comes to peace. So Daniel, how can we move forward? What would it look like? It's so hard to do it, but you need to be open to understand First of all, that Israel is a very diverse country with lots of different people with lots of opinions. But then there seems to be an emphasis, a focus on Israel as illegitimate in a way that no other country is deemed illegitimate, at least by certain people. And that kind of effort to make Israel illegitimate, the existence illegitimate, feeds into all of the fear that Israeli Jews have, an ex existential threat that they feel based on real experience. I think what's important to understand is, although Israelis have a powerful state and a powerful military, the the ghost of the Holocaust is everywhere. Um, there, there are so many Holocaust survivors and children and grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, and it's pervading fear so that, that, that they have. And I, and I can relate very much to that because um, on my father's side of the family, most of the, most of the people there, most of them were killed in Europe. And the few that escaped moved to Israel. Um, my father has one first cousin who moved to Israel and one uncle. Everybody else was killed. So I, so I really understand the, the fear that the Israelis have. That continues on uh, for other reasons that we know, being surrounded by enemies and all of that. And so if people want to support Palestinians, look for a way to open doors. So fight for justice, be in solidarity with Palestinians or with Israelis, whoever you're in solidarity with, but open your heart to the suffering of the others and to the perspectives of the others. And so it's up to us to have a luxury of distance to do what we can right now to lower the flame, to lower the flame, to 
stop the, the continued suffering and violence as much as we can. I went yesterday to Albany and, and there were all these demonstrators and it was so filled with yelling about things that I can't march with because it, it then excludes the Israelis in any, for, in any future. We might still disagree radically about the conflict, but if we want to stop the violence and if we want to humanize the other, when the people in the fire can't do that as well, we need to listen to those whom we might disagree with on a lot of details, but if we believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people, if we believe that people have rights, no matter who they are, there is such thing as human rights, let's try to create demonstrations that can be bigger because they can be inclusive. And they include people who, who love Palestine, who love Palestinians and, and are very angry about Israel and, and, and not, don't have a connection to Israel and people who love Israel and feel very connected to Israel, but also don't want this violence on Palestinians and want Palestinians to live a good life. How do we enlarge the tent of the demonstrations or of the movement or of what we ask our Congress people? That I think is a big challenge. Israeli society and Israeli society in general is very complex and has a lot of beautiful things about it, as does Palestinian society. And, and the two are very connected in lots of ways. Another friend I have, he says, look, I wear a necklace on my, on my neck of the full map, but that's my dream. My, the reality is we have to live together. So my small hope, this is a man named Mohammed Dajani, my small hope is that we can live together. So to live my small hope, we have to give up my, uh, my big dream. And I want to do that because that's the way to live together. And that's the way to create a more just, more human, humane, more peaceful future. If we could create that kind of sense of shared humanity, it would make a big difference. That was the second part of Marsha Lazarus's interview with Daniel Noah Moses. And uh, you can find the first part on our website, as well as other stories around uh, peace and Israel and Palestine on our website, mediasanctuary.org. And Daniel recently started an initiative with friends called The Fig Tree Alliance, working on working with educators, artists, and community leaders along lines of conflict. More information is at figtreealliance.org. Next, we hear about lots of Halloween and fall fun happenings at the Troy Public Library, starting with the first annual Fall Fest on October 21st, noon to 4. Bria Barthel spoke with members of various libraries in the area to tell us about these events. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, compiling information about a number of activities going on at Troy Public Library. We're going to start with Ian Houck, Head of Adult Services and Reference Services, because they have a fall festival coming up. Ian, what's going on? So on Saturday the 21st from 12 to 4, we are having our first fall festival here at the Troy Public Library. We have a lot of uh, events that will be happening that day. We are going to have scarecrow making, face painting, uh, pumpkin painting, some tarot reading. Um, the Ironworks food truck is going to be uh, coming to help us with a fundraiser. What is the Ironworks food truck? It's a local group we worked with and we're having a fundraiser so you can come and get a half chicken, baked potato, and coleslaw. Uh, from them. And the friends of the Troy Public Library with that will also be having a bake sale uh, to go along with that to fundraise for the library, as well as a uh, special 
um, book sale that's going to focus on mysteries and thrillers and uh, other Halloween-y type books, they will be for sale at the library too. I think I have to alert all my friends to this because we all love mystery books. Okay. And you mentioned scarecrow making. Do I have to bring anything? Do you supply everything? Everything at the Fall Fest will be provided for everyone that wants to come. Um, So we encourage everyone to please stop by and enjoy some fall activities with us. And in another piece, we talked about zombie apocalypses. Can you decorate a scarecrow to look like a zombie? I would certainly hope so, and uh, I I will be looking out for one, actually, uh, when you come. So I'm going to be on the lookout for one. And then you said this is the first fall festival? It is the first one we are doing, yes. Uh, So so we're really looking forward to it, and we've put a lot of of energy into it. Okay, and anything else that you want our listeners to know about it? So again, uh, it is from 12 to 4 on Saturday the 21st, and then uh, at the tail end of the event, uh, in our art gallery, we will be having uh, live music. So we will be having live music here in the library as well. And the library, this is the main branch at 100 Second Street in Troy, New York. If you want more information, you can go to thetroylibrary.org. Ian, thanks a lot. Thank you. Now to tell us about some other events at Troy Public Library is Lori Dreyer, branch manager of the Lansingburg branch. And you wanted to add something to Ian's description of the first annual, as you described it, uh, fall festival. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, just one quick thing. We wanted to let everybody know that you can pre-order your chicken dinner from Ironworks Barbecue uh, on our website. If you go to our website, you will find the link and you can put that order in ahead of time. You might want to do that too because they may sell out. Okay, and then you have a few other activities, a couple other activities to mention. I do, yeah. Some exciting stuff is going on. Um, And all of it, of course, is listed on our calendar, our library events calendar, which can be found on our website. Uh, The first one I wanted to mention, though, is that we are discussing Payback is a Witch, or Payback's a Witch, by Lana Harper on November 1st at 6.30 p.m., That's with our Happily Ever After book club, one of our many book clubs. Uh, And that group is going to meet at the main library. Uh, We're also talking. So Payback's a Witch is a Happily Ever After story. It is a witchy romance, Bria. (laughs) Yes. And so, and you and I have discussed this before. This is a whole genre. So uh, come and explore this genre with our Happily Ever After book club. Absolutely. They meet every month. Um, So our Contemporary Fiction Book Club, which meets at the Lansingburg branch, is going to be discussing City of Girls by Elizabeth Gilbert on Wednesday, October 25th at 2 p.m. So that's our our only afternoon book club. Um, And um, that is a fantastic book if you want to come in and talk about it, even if you read it years ago, because I know it came out a while ago. Uh, It's a really popular book, and it's really wonderfully written. So, And then the last thing I wanted to mention was we are making Autumn Wreaths. Um, at the Lansingburg Branch Library. Yes, yeah, on Tuesday, October 24th at 5 p.m., all the supplies are being provided. We are very uh, lucky. We got a grant, and uh, so all of the supplies are being provided, and we'll be making wreaths together. I'll be leading that, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, we do ask that you register so that we can make sure that we have enough supplies, and again, you can do that on our website. Thanks a lot, Lori. Thank you, Brea. 
And now joining me is Carol Roberts, Young People Services Librarian at Troy Public Library. And she has a little bit more to add about the fall festival and then has some other activities coming up. Carol? Yes, our fall festival on the 21st from 12 to 4 at the main library. We're also going to have a spooky story walk around the perimeter of the building. Um, of course, if it rains, we'll do it inside. So I suspect that people who would be interested in a story walk know what it is, but can you just explain? Yes, we um, disembowel a children's book. <laughs> no? <laughs> we take it apart, um, and then we laminate it, and then we attach it to um, signposts, and then we post those around the outside of the building. And so you can get exercise and take a stroll with your kids um, while you're reading a fun, spooky tale. And those laminated pages will be up for a while. It's not like you come to the festival and then they're taken down? Um, well, this one actually we will take down because we don't, have a, um, we don't have a permanent area outside in which to present it. Um, they'll be just, you know, leaning up against the building for the event. Okay, great. And that's on October 21st. And then what else do you have going on? We're going to have a spooky matinee um, featuring a classic 1990 movie starring Angelica Houston based on the book The Witches by Roald Dahl. And um, this is going to be rated PG, and it's a, the classic film, and uh, that will be on Saturday, October 28th at 2 p.m. And then we're also, um, we have a teen anime club coming up on October 25th. And it's the fourth Wednesday of the month at Maine, and it's from 6 to 7 p.m. Teens can come. They'll watch a couple episodes of different anime and sample uh, some Japanese candy. What could be better? Okay, those all sound good. And that was Carol Roberts, Young People Services Librarian at the Troy Public Library. And these events are all happening at the Maine branch at 100 Second Street in downtown Troy. And for more information on these or any of the other events mentioned earlier, check out thetroylibrary.org. Thanks a lot, Carol. Thank you, Bria. And thanks again to Ian Houck and Lori Dreyer for their earlier discussions of activities happening at Troy Public Library. Enjoy your fall and enjoy the fall festival and all the other activities. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Another great library update from Bria Barthel and some really good Halloween puns right there. Um, as mentioned, more information is at their website. Hey, and finally, this Friday, October 20th, join us at the Sanctuary for Exploring Motherhood, Navigating the Journey of Disability. Victoria Carezzi, a longtime member of the Sanctuary community, is presenting her film Into Loving Hands. She tells us more about this upcoming event. Exploring Motherhood, Navigating the Journey of Disability is an evening of honoring motherhood and disability with filmmakers Noelle Gentile, Michael Mejia, and Victoria Carezzi, and storyteller Bethany Van Delft. The short film Between Us and feature documentary film Into Loving Hands will be screened, followed by a panel discussion about motherhood, choice, giving birth, and advocating for a child with disabilities and medical complexities in a society that was not built with them in mind. This evening takes place on Friday, October 20th at 7 p.m. 
And I'm now joined by the director of Into Loving Hands, Victoria Carezzi, and the midwife who's at the center of the documentary, Michelle Doyle. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you for having me. Victoria, could you begin by giving us a better understanding of what one might expect at Friday's event? Yes. So um, Friday's event is um, a a bit more involved in just a film screening um, because the films that are going to be screened are going to be followed by a panel discussion with healthcare providers, midwives, parents and educators of people with um, disabilities. And especially exciting for the panel is that um, there is going to be a young woman who has Down syndrome who's going to personally talk about her experience growing up and living her life. And I'm really excited to have Greta on the panel also. Um, There are two films that are going to be screened. There's a short film by Noelle Gentile, and it's a time capsule of uh, her experience discovering that her daughter Isla had a genetic disorder and epilepsy. And then my film, Into Loving Hands, is an hour-long documentary that follows Michelle Doyle and um, one of her clients as they struggle with a difficult prenatal diagnosis and the journey that follows from there culminating into a home birth. So the film Into Loving Hands exists because you, Victoria, um, was under the care of Michelle Doyle as a midwife, and you decided to film the process as a way of, of giving back, and this story came about through that. Michelle, as a midwife, Part of the care is providing information and choice, providing um, that guidance to families who are expanding their families. Could you talk about that kind of work and what, how, how do you inform a parent? I try very hard to listen with my ears, my eyes, my whole body to what somebody's presenting to me as who they are so that I have that to inform myself with as I'm sharing information about the general standard of care for say prenatal testing or the standard of care for doing certain kinds of blood tests or ultrasounds so that we've developed a relationship and midwifery is building relationships is crucial to midwifery. You never know when you're moving forward with any kind of medical care or midwifery care, what you're going to uncover. So it could be that you're going to uncover that somebody has some previous trauma that they weren't aware of, or it could be you're going to uncover that somebody's blood pressure is extremely high today when it was normal a couple days ago, or you, it could be that you're going to uncover that a baby has a multitude of anomalies and isn't expected to live past the time they're out of their mother's womb. Having that relationship where I've listened to somebody helps us be in relationship so that when I'm giving information, it's not just words, but that they can hopefully hear in a way that they can absorb and then ask me the questions they need to ask so we can get to the answer that they need for themselves. So how was the journey with this film when the unexpected happened and how did you continue to inform and guide the family? Ah, I just chose Rebecca because she's gorgeous. 
Um, she looks good on camera. She previously had a baby. It should have been a cinch of a pregnancy. So we'd chosen Rebecca and started filming when all of this unfolded, that we didn't hear his heartbeat one time in a prenatal visit. And then the 20 week ultrasound was dire. And then the maternal was bad, really bad. And then the next ultrasound was even worse. And then the amniocentesis showed eh, Down syndrome. Okay, Down syndrome, but we still had brain anomalies and heart anomalies that were huge. Um, so it all unfolded in the course of making what was supposed to be a three minute film. So obviously it could no longer be a three minute little film. Originally, the film was supposed to be a short portrait film about Michelle and home birth and what a home birth midwife does. And as Michelle said, she chose Rebecca as the family that I would be following. I went to one or two appointments and filmed Rebecca, just regular prenatal midwife appointment. And she was all excited to find out if she was going to have um, a boy or a girl. And I get a call um, after that second appointment that I filmed from Michelle saying, so you know, the ultrasound looks really bad. Like, we're just going to have to halt and pause this video. And then Michelle uh, reached out to Rebecca. Rebecca said, no, I don't want her to stop filming. I want this to be a, a, a tribute to my unborn baby who didn't have a name at that point. Really what Rebecca wanted was a, a tribute to, to her baby, thinking that he wasn't going to make it. So the event on Friday is a large part of this as a purpose to inform people who may not even know that this is going to be part of their world or, or are looking for resources because it is a part of their world. What is the objective of this Friday's event? The objective of this Friday's event is to bring people together who are caring for people with complex prenatal diagnosis, um, you know, parents, caregivers, support people, friends, family, to come together and just really figure out ways to, you know, raise awareness about this and have families and, you know, mothers and parents feel not so alone. And to let people find within themselves their, their inner knowledge um, and to at least start, even if they haven't been presented in their life with a challenge, like the the parents in the films and the discussion have been, well, things are going to happen in your life coming up. And how do you find a sense that you are the, the nexus of power? It, the decision for yourself and your child legally and emotionally comes from you. And it's really easy to let it be um, given away or taken away by the powers that be, such as medical providers. But, you know, claiming your power, I think is really important for all of us, but especially for parents. Well, we're really excited to be seeing this film so in addition to Into Loving Hands, Between Us, the short film will also be shown. Can you tell us a little bit about that film? So that film um, was made by Noelle when I had first met her, actually. Um, so it was about 
eight years ago. Um, she made the film as she was trying to figure out, you know, what was going on with her daughter, Isla. So it's a situation where, you know, Rebecca found out that um, in the prenatal diagnosis that some stuff was going on. Noelle was opposite of that. So her film is really trying to kind of pick up the pieces and try to figure out all of the complex emotions and information that go into having a child with a genetic diagnosis. They actually don't know exactly what her diagnosis is yet. Um, she does have epilepsy as well. So um, there's a lot of the processing in her film about what it feels like when your child has um, repeated emergencies, health emergencies. And Noelle's look, really looking at that film as a time capsule um, because now, you know, eight to 10 years later, things are very different in her life. And one of the things that she's been working on is um, post-production for a, a narrative film that she's made now. And that is going to be going out to festivals and hopefully will be screening uh, in 2024. And that film is called I Was Here. Fantastic. Friday is going to be filled with just so much information. And we're looking forward to having follow up conversations. We've been in discussion about bringing in parental groups in the spring. And you'll be joined by quite a few panelists on stage. This event is taking place on Friday, October 20th at 7pm. Victoria Caresi and Michelle Doyle, it's been such a pleasure. And I'd love to leave you with the last words. I think one of the powerful things that we will absorb from the screening on Friday is living with your heart and not necessarily your head. That's one of the big things that I learned from working with Rebecca and Michelle in the process of this film. Absolutely. <laughs> living with your heart and your head and how can we navigate our journey as humans and even more complexly as parents with guiding both of those, our heart and our head. And how do you fill your, fill your cup with your, your team and your other people around you? I'm hoping that people can come away with this with a sense of community and some ideas of where they can reach out to find the folks to put on their, their life, life team. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was my interview with Victoria Carezzi and um, Michelle Doyle, the midwife. And we are so excited for this event on Friday, and we hope that you can join us. That begins at 7 p.m., and ahead of that, 3.30 to 5.30 in the Collard City Growers is Garden Walk Seed Saving and Seed Rematriation with Lucille Greeno. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You can find more information about those events at mediasanctuary.org. I'm Sina Bazila-Hickey. And I'm Lavender. Our engineer is Sina Bazila-Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Marsha Lazarus, Bria Barthel, and myself. We appreciate you listening. Until next time. 